this morning as we open your word. We seek to know your will for our lives and, and not our own. And I realize, Father, coming to this today, that there are very different opinions about what we're going to discuss this morning. But we seek to know and understand the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you will tie us fast, bind us to your word in such a way that whatever our opinions are, we will see your opinion and desire to live by it. And Holy Spirit, we, we need you to teach us, as we ask every time we open the Bible, to be our teacher, our guide, to lead us through word by word, verse by verse, page by page, that we might know you better and understand, Father, your will for our lives. And also in these things that we might see Jesus more clearly. And it's in his name that we praise and we pray. Amen. Would you stay standing for a moment? Some of you started sitting. I caught you. And let's uh, just stay standing before the Lord for the reading of these verses. And then you can be seated in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. You may be seated. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord and in the word of the Lord that he magnifies, Psalm 138, 139 tells us he magnifies his word even above his name. His word is so important, so critical, and we can have the lights on there in the back too. And because it's so important, by the way, if you don't have a Bible this morning, raise your hand and we'll hand one to you. We've got extras in the back. I want to make sure everyone has God's word to study through. But we need to understand and follow His Word over our own. And that oftentimes doesn't seem like that big a deal. We think about God being love. We like the idea of love. We even think about what we talked about last week, honoring your father and mother. And, and parents want to be honored. And there's much in the Word of God that makes sense. But there are other things that God has stated that over the course of history, man has decided to disagree with. Man has, in his arrogance, decided to have opinions about things that are not of opinion as far as the Father is concerned. And this morning we come to one of those areas. A commandment that you might not think is that big a deal. I didn't. As a matter of fact, coming to the sixth commandment of the ten that we're studying right now, I kind of figured we'll just breeze right by this one until I started studying. And realize there's some issues here that God's Word needs to clear up for us. But before we get there, we've done five commandments. Let's see how well you remember them. Five commandments. The first one. Who knows the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Right. Number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You guys are really sharp this morning. I feel going fumbling around. You know, this should be a closed book test. Really should. First one, repeat after me. You shall have no other gods before me. 
Good. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Good. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And number five, honor your father and mother. And you may say, Rick, are we going to do this like Sunday school? Every single Sunday that we are in the Ten Commandments? You betcha. Until we know these and understand them and they are imprinted on our hearts, I want you to be able to call them up. I don't want you to be one of those people, as we said a few weeks back, who stopped on the street by Jay Leno with the camera and he says, hey, can you name some of the Ten Commandments? And you go, something about not stealing, I think, is in there. I want you to know them. I think the Lord wants us to know them. Well, commandment number six, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Opinion? (laughs) Different opinions on this command? How many different opinions can there be about you shall not murder? I mean, if you're not following commandment number five, honor your father and mother, maybe this is an issue in some households. But for most of us, you shall not murder. Not that difficult. Not that big a deal. Well, let's get clear about something right off the bat here. When we get to the last half of the, of the commandments, six through ten, five more commandments to go, and you shall not murder being the first of those. And if you look in Exodus chapter 20, which I encourage you to do right now, you'll see going down the line, they're almost right there in a row. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And most people know the shall nots. Or even if they don't know all the commands, they know that some of the commandments start with, you shall not. We've heard that. We understand that. You shall not murder is a two-word command in Hebrew. We stretched into a sentence. It's just two words. Lo ratzach. Which literally means no killing. No killing. If you studied or learned these commands in Sunday school as a kid, or if you ever heard them before, you may have heard them in the King James Version, Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. No killing. In fact, every command down the line from here on out is just a couple of words. It's no something. God says no killing. No adultery. No stealing. No bearing false witness. No coveting. Five no's in a row. It's one of the first words parents learn to use on their children. No. We had some friends who determined they were never going to use the word no, and that lasted about two days. Because what else are you going to say to a child who is about to pull a pot of hot boiling spaghetti off the stove onto their head? What are you going to say? Honey, let's discuss this for a moment. If you pull that pot onto your head, it's probably going to scald you and leave you marred for life. We think that's a bad idea. And so, rather than say no, I'd like to encourage you not to do this. Of course not. You say, no! Get away from that. And then you hug him and explain why you yelled at him. But no! Because it stops us in our tracks. It keeps us from doing that which we might naturally want to do. No. No, says the Lord. To an infantile mind, you say, no. Explanations don't cut it. And Israel is infantile in their faith at this point in their history. Infantile. They are still learning about God, beginning to come into a relationship with Him, but watching Him work and trying to understand this awesome, awesome God. And so He says, no. 
five no's in a row. And you might say, well, Lord, that's a little on the negative side. News this week was in the news that I believe it's in California. A lot of these things happen in California. There's a preschool that is doing away with timeouts because they're just a little too negative for the kiddos. In these spankings, that's right out. We can't have corporal punishment, but now even timeouts. Yeah, to set that child to the side in a peaceful little chair for a few moments, I think that's hard on the little ego. Which is why in other states they're handcuffing kids to drag them out of school. <laughs>
By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now again, some of you may look at commandment number six, no killing. You shall not murder, and you may think, I've never murdered anybody. So this does not apply to me, no big deal. Or you may look at this commandment and think, I have killed in acts of war. Does this mean I'm guilty of the sixth commandment? Because of the nature of where God has planted the bridge, we have many guys in the Navy. A lot of people in the military. Many of you who have fought in previous battles in Vietnam or today in Iraq who have been involved in killing, who have seen bloodshed, or who have pulled the trigger. And so we come to commandment number six and we say, what about me? I was in war. You shall not kill. What do I do with that? I like to look at it this way. Two men working up on a roof, on a chimney, trying to get it cleaned out, a large chimney, and as they're working on it, there's a small earthquake, and both men tumble into the chimney. The first man goes down the chimney, ending up getting dirt all over his face, and soot, and blackness. The other man slides right behind him, but because the first man kind of cleans it out with his own body and face, the second man doesn't get quite so dirty. They land at the bottom, crawl out, and the first man, who has dirt all over his face, soot and blackness all over his face, looks at the second man and says... His face is clean. Therefore, my face must be clean. Well, the man with the clean face, who has no soot, looks at the man with the dirty face and thinks, Oh no, his face is dirty. Therefore, my face must be dirty. And the reality is, they're both wrong. They're both wrong. Those who think the Sixth Commandment has nothing to do with them, and those who suffer guilt when they approach this commandment, may very well both be wrong the truth is there's more to this short directive than meets the eye would you flip in your Bibles over to Matthew we're going to do some jumping back and forth this morning in some different areas and I'd like you to stick with me and follow this Matthew chapter 19 Matthew 19 verse 16 now it's interesting when you when you preach and teach as I do you discover there are different approaches to Bible study and lessons and there are some Bible studies that are just very personal in their application you walk out and you feel warmed up and, and a sense of closeness to Jesus there are other Bible studies like this this morning that are very technical that answer specific questions that deal with issues and you may not walk out feeling warm and fuzzy but I guarantee you will walk out of here, of here knowing Well, I hope what God's Word has to say about a very critical issue. Matthew chapter 19. In verse 16, Jesus says the following. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And then he goes on. The guy said to him, Well, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, do you see what Jesus just did? He defines for us the exact terminology of the sixth commandment. 
If you're reading in the Hebrew, it says no killing. And you say, oh, so where does that place me? If I've ever been in a position, war, a war-type position, and I've killed someone, Jesus explains, because in the Greek when he says, you shall not commit murder, the word is murder. Jesus indicates a difference. There's killing, and there's murder. And they're not always necessarily the same thing. Going back to the Hebrew word murder, ratzak, it literally means to dash into pieces or to slay. What it indicates is someone who has premeditated, who's chosen, who has decided, who wants to, who has uh, purpose in their heart to commit murder, to kill. That's what this word is focusing on. This morning, and again, this, this I know, especially in our country, in our culture today, some of what I'm going to share will be controversial. Maybe not for a lot of you, but for some of you, I guarantee you're going to hear it and say, no, I disagree. I absolutely disagree. And I encourage you again, not to listen to my words, but go back to what the Word of God says. Because I'll tell you right now, one of the three points I'm going to give you this morning, I disagreed with vehemently before I studied it. Let's look at this. I want to give you three this morning misconceptions of murder. Three misconceptions of murder that the Bible, I believe, completely clears up for us to help us understand it. And the first one, the one that I used to disagree with, but I've come to understand, is capital punishment. Capital punishment. Now I'd like you to flip from Matthew back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 4. As we begin to consider murder and the command of no murder or no killing, we need to go back to the first murder that ever took place on the face of the planet. And we understand and learn some things from this. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1, where we'll begin as you're flipping back there. Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought in an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain... And his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? By the way, how long did Cain, how long was he angry with Abel? How long did he hate his brother Abel? How long did Cain hate him? As as long as he was able. Reading on. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And Cain told this to Abel, his brother. Interesting. Pause right there. In the middle of this verse, there's a period, and I believe there was an amount of time that, that took place there. Cain and Abel discussed this matter. Talked about the fact. Not only that God didn't accept Cain's offering... But that God told Cain, sin crouching at the door and desires you. Well, Cain shared this conversation with God. He shared with his brother Abel. Some time goes on and the verse continues then. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Killed him. Ratzah. 
And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Interesting note. For those of you who who studied Genesis way back when we first started this, almost two years ago now, you'll know this, you'll remember this. Many of you may not have heard this, but the word blood there in the Hebrew is plural. Literally, it should read, the voice of your brother's bloods is crying to me from the ground. Bloods. Not blood. Not just the blood belonging to Abel, but bloods. There's a plurality here. There's an old rabbinical proverb that says, if you kill one person, you kill the world. And this is understood even in Scripture. Because by Cain murdering, killing Abel, he did not just kill Abel. He killed Abel and all of the offspring that Abel might have had had he continued to live. Generation upon generation upon generation who were killed in this act of killing one person. It's never the case that one person is killed and murdered. There are always generations that follow who will not live because of that murder. If you kill one person, you kill the world. The bloods cry out. So Abel's bloods cry out from the ground. Read on, verse 11. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand, he says. Verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, this is God speaking to Cain, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Oh, really, Cain? Well, you're still alive, aren't you? Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and your face... From your face I will be hidden, which, by the way, is Cain saying, I'm not going to seek you anymore. From your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And so the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain. He marked him in such a way so that no one finding him would slay him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain is now a marked man. He is a fugitive. He's a wanderer on the earth. But he is marked. He is marked with mercy. Interesting. But follow the story further on. Several years. Then generations down the line. And skip over to verse 23. Several generations down the line, an offspring of, of Cain, Lamech. Lamech. Good guy, Lamech. His name pronounced correctly should really be Lame-O because of the way he is. He says to his wives, Lame-O does, Ada and Zillah, his two wives, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, and a boy for striking me. And if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold, or literally seventy times seven. If Cain is avenged, if Cain is protected, how much more me? Seventy times seven, which is interesting because Jesus says in Matthew 18:21 that Peter said, Lord, how often should my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Jesus responded, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. 
So while Lamo is looking for vengeance and, and looking to be covered 70 times 7, Jesus is saying, you forgive 70 times 7. Because the flesh, the Lamech in us, cries vengeance, but the Spirit cries forgiveness. Forgiveness. But watch and learn the lesson here. God shows mercy to Cain, and several generations later, evil has found a strong root in Lamech's pride and arrogance and haughtiness. In fact, if you continue the story, Genesis chapter 6, reading on, in the next several chapters, we discover that, that sin and violence on the earth has become so bad that God has to pull the plug on the whole project. It's gotten so intense on the earth. It has advanced, if you will, so far that the Lord looks at the world and says, enough. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Down in verse 11, it goes on to tell us the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with, what's that? Violence. Violence. It's the only word that is used going into the flood to explain specifically what this evil on earth is about. Violence. It had gotten so bloody, so violent, so wicked, so bad that God said enough is enough. It's time to put man out of his misery. The very mercy that God showed Cain back in the very beginning, several generations later, is twisted in Lamech and then ultimately has spread out now to the whole world where everyone's living for themselves and saying, I will protect me and I'll kill anyone who gets in my face. And violence was the reason the world was destroyed. And we think, wow, how are we doing today in the world in which we live? As a church, how are we doing? Well, actually, we're a pretty peace-loving church. If you're visiting for the first time, we haven't had any deaths in here recently. We get along pretty well. But I will put this to you, and you have to answer this between yourself and the Lord. How many of you are excited about seeing Amityville Horror this week? Or maybe, what's the other one out? House of Wax? Can't wait to see Paris Hilton and House of Wax, that fine actress. We can go and sit down and watch all kinds of violence and completely enjoy it. As long as it's vicarious, as long as it's on the screen, but gang, it's still violence. Yeah, but it's Hollywood magic. Great, that's what you're into. But it's violence that caused the world to be destroyed. It's this whole issue of violence. And we sit in it and enjoy it and call it entertainment today as much as Rome did in the days of the gladiators. Well, continuing on, watch what the Lord does after washing the world clean of the violence in the flood. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Genesis 9, 6 goes on and he says, Oh, this is interesting. Whoever sheds man's blood by his blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Let's read that again. For whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And I go, wait a minute, Lord. The earth was filled with violence. And so you wiped it clean. And now the first command you're giving coming out of the ark in this Noahic covenant, this covenant that he made with Noah, he says, if someone kills someone else, that person is dead meat. 
If you spill the blood of man, your blood will be spilled. If you kill, you will die for it. And by the way, this command is not part of the Jewish law. Was never part of the Jewish law. This was a command directly from God to Noah and his descendants, which is, guess who? All of us. This is not bound up just for Israel. This isn't something that was set aside just for them. The idea of capital punishment, my friends, is not something God only gave to Israel. He gave it to mankind and all of mankind in the Noahic Covenant. By God's standards, capital punishment is legitimate. And that's a tough one, especially if you have a merciful heart. Especially if you're a very compassionate person and hope that every person would have an opportunity to change even if they have murdered someone. But capital punishment, according to the Lord, is legitimate. He also uh, reiterates it in the Ten Commandments, or just following Exodus chapter 21, verse 12. In the Mosaic Law, he said, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. If you kill, you will be killed. If you murder, you will be put to death. Now flip in your Bibles back to the New Testament, Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Follow these things closely, folks. Romans chapter 13. This whole idea is capital punishment murder. Should we have that? Maybe we should wipe that out completely. And there are strong, Christ-loving believers who absolutely stand against capital punishment who are out in front of jails every time they know a criminal is going to be executed, protesting it in the name of Jesus. And there are others on the other side of the fence who are, well, a little more quiet. The Christians who believe in capital punishment, because no one wants to stand up and say, oh, I hope somebody's going to die today. I think it's a great thing. Kill. But you need to understand again what the scriptures say. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 verse 1, he says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Let me just say something about this. There were a lot of Christians who were up in arms during the Clinton era. Some of you may have been supporters of Clinton, and I'm not saying anything bad about him, but in this era, a lot of what's called now the religious right was really upset and just wanted him out. He committed adultery in the White House. Yeah, so did David. Not in the White House, he was in the palace. David, one of the greatest rulers, who we would lift up as a man after God's own heart, who we would say was a great leader, did the same thing that Bill Clinton did in the presidency. And the point is this. It is God, Paul says very clearly, who puts the governing authorities into place. You know what's really hard to take? Paul wrote this to Rome at the time that Nero was killing Christians and the Christians had to read and accept that as God's word. How do you think they felt about that? Paul, you're telling me that Nero was put in place by God? Absolutely. We're not saying that what Nero is doing in every sense was right. We're not saying that what Clinton is doing is right. We're not saying that what Bush does is always right. What we're saying is that God ordains the governing authorities. But Paul goes on. Verse 2, he says, Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now, there are exceptions to that, I'm saying. Do you want to have no fear of authority? 
Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. You want to be a good friend of Lake Jacobson? Don't speed. It's easy. It works. You don't speed, though. I'm, I'm not, he'll be your friend if you speed, but he'll just give you a ticket for it. And not to a party. Where am I? Verse 3. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. Verse 4. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, pay attention to this, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And biblical commentators for literally thousands of years have understood that to mean capital punishment. One who bears the sword. An avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The combinations of the words sword and wrath indicate, indicate execution. As a matter of fact, the Bible Knowledge Commentary states the following, God has given the sword to rulers, and with it the authority to punish, and even to execute. Capital punishment was ordained in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. We read that, and it has not since been abolished. So regardless of how you feel, personally, about capital punishment, from a biblical perspective, there is a reason for it. There is a legitimate use of it. By the way, as far as murder is concerned, I wonder what a world that can be so disgusted by the likes of a Scott Peterson enjoys so much some of the movies that we watch. I, I don't understand. I mean, we can. There were. Did you see when when, when Scott Peterson was was convicted, guilty, you know, he's guilty of murder. Did you see that they were outside and they were kind of panning the crowds. And it actually bothered me a little bit. There were a group of people. The camera was on, and you heard someone shout, "The verdict is guilty!" And they went, "Yes!" And these weren't even people who were related. And they were celebrating. And I thought, wow, oh, that made me really uncomfortable. Not the fact that there was a verdict. Or the capital punishment may be employed. But the fact that people relished it, enjoyed it, were excited about it. You don't have to feel good about it. But God ordains capital punishment. It is not murder. It is with use by God. And by the way, any time that capital punishment is not outside, the rules, the laws, the penalties tend to go down as well. You don't have that as a standard by which other things are measured. The other things tend to be measured with less and less. And so you have child molesters in jail for two or three years and let out. And that makes no sense. Capital punishment from a biblical perspective is not murder. Misconception number two. Misconception number two. And this one's an easier one. Manslaughter. Accidental deaths do happen and the Lord knew this. And so he gave the Israelites a caveat to the rule of capital punishment. Exodus chapter 21 verse 12 says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, God let, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which he may flee. And you've got to see something. The book of Joshua chapter 20 back in the Old Testament. The sixth book of the Old Testament. Right after Deuteronomy, Joshua. Chapter 6. I'm sorry, no, it's Joshua chapter 20. Skip over there. (laughs) That didn't look right. Joshua 20. And the Lord is speaking to Joshua and he's reiterating this whole plan. And the plan is this. If you are in a fight or if there's a problem or an accidental death occurs, you kill somebody 
and you didn't mean to, and it wasn't premeditated, and it was a complete accident, you do have a place that you can run, where you can be protected from vengeance. And there were several cities set up in Jerusalem that were cities of refuge that the person could run to and be protected, and they could stay there for an amount of time. But how long? Watch this. Joshua chapter 20. Beginning in verse 1, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. That the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally, without premeditation, may flee there. And they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. Watch this. He shall flee to one of these cities. He shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and state his case in the hearing of the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city to them and give him a place so that he may dwell among them. Now if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor without premeditation and did not hate him beforehand. Verse 6. How long does he stay there? He shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. The manslayer shall return to his own city, to his own house, to the city from which he fled. In other words, the length of time you stayed in the city was until the death of the high priest. The length of time that you bear the guilt of this accidental death is until the death of the high priest. Until the death of the high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. It is Jesus' death, our high priest, that secures our salvation, our redemption, when we are fleeing in sin. Pretty cool, huh? So misconception number two is manslaughter. Misconception number three, and this is the one I really wanted to get to, war. War. Should we be fighting in Iraq? It's interesting to me. You can drive over to Anacortes on any given Sunday. Commercial and 12. And you're going to have people on any of the quarters. Hey, is it still going on? Are they still? Okay, still there. These people need to get a life. But anyway. And you've got the pro-Bush people and you have the anti-Bush people and you have the Bush is a killer people and you have Bush is a great president people and you have the we should not be at war and you have the we should be at war and all this is back and forth and they're holding their signs and hoping people are going to honk for them. And by the way, I think Christians could spend their time a little better wherever you stand on an issue. I really do. Than holding up signs and stating we're against you. How about we love you and we want you to see the truth. Anyway, war. Where do you stand on war this morning? For or against? Should we be in Iraq? Should we not? Now many of you are in the Navy and I have a pretty good sense of how you feel. That this is a duty, it's a call. There are also, I'm sure, those who are here this morning who would say we should not be there. But gang, I have to tell you that according to Scripture, the boss was wrong. War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Bruce Springsteen was wrong. The Bible tells us that God has ordained that wars would and must take place. Matthew 24, verse 6. Jesus said, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. And that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And only with the coming of the Prince of Peace will war be ceased, and will the tools of war be beaten into tools of farming. 
Isaiah chapter 2 verse 4 He will judge between the nations and He will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. But until He comes there will be war. There will be. And it will continue and it will intensify as it has intensified. I've shared this before. There's some 40 to 45 hot spots, wars going on right now all over the world. We have been more at war in this century, in this generation, than any previous generation in the history of mankind. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, Jesus said, and things continue to spin down toward that time when the Prince of Peace will cease all wars. We're close to that, I believe. But we also know that God ordained Israel upon their arrival in Canaan's land to drive out by war all the inhabitants of the land. Deuteronomy chapter 20 verse 17. You shall utterly destroy them, God says. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite and the Hedlites and the Parasites and the Megabites. As the Lord your God has commanded you so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things. God was so concerned that his people be set apart and remain holy that when he sent them into the promised land he said I want you to wipe out everybody in front of you take them down drive them completely out of the land how Lord? by war you will be a warring people in Joshua Jesus shows up and that's a story we'll cover later and he's called the captain of the guard captain of the host And Israel went strong and the nations feared before them and they wiped out nation after nation. There were times where God says, every man, woman, child and beast you shall wipe out. And I think, oh man, I understand the Bible saying this. And this, by the way, is why people, when they look at Jesus in the New Testament, say God must have changed his mind or maybe Jesus is different than God. No, he's not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is God. God and Jesus being one and the same, He hasn't changed His mind. He ordained war. For what purpose? To drive evil out. I do agree with our current sitting president that the driving out of the evil of Saddam Hussein was justified. And staying and trying to take a stand for the people who are innocent in Iraq right now, trying to establish a free society, is justified. It's justified. The war that God called for with Israel as his agent of righteousness was also justified because it was an act, hear me on this, it was an act of divine mercy. Not just for Israel, but for the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. How was it divine mercy? Genesis chapter 15 verse 13 God is speaking to Abraham and he says listen Abram know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land not theirs where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years and then he says then in the fourth generation they will return here to the promised land for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete what does that mean? it means God gave the inhabitants of Canaan 400 years to repent It wasn't just that Israel was enslaved for 400 years. God took Israel out. And though we don't see it recorded in the pages of Scripture, He also has designed, at least, well, we do see this in the pages of Scripture. We don't see it in the Old Testament pages. But God had designed for the Amorites, for the Hivites, the Jebusites, and who I made fun of. He loved those people as well. 
in the way the scripture tells us he loves all people and desires all people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He loved the people in Canaan's land. However, they were so wicked and so debased, sacrificing even their babies to other gods, that after 400 years, Israel became the point of God's spear in just war and punishment. God was putting them out of misery like you would shoot a dog with rabies. We watched Old Yeller again the other day. (laughs) Poor Old Yeller. Hayden watched for a little bit, but he knew that Old Yeller was going to die at the end. You've seen it, haven't you? I don't want to give that away. Maybe he doesn't die if you haven't seen it. Hayden knew he was going to die at about every five minutes. He would say, is the dog going to die now? Is the dog going to die now? Is the dog going to die now? When we finally got close to the part where you have Old Yeller's getting sick, Hayden was out of there. He didn't want to see it. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. When something is as rabid as the people of Canaan, God put them out of their misery. When someone is so debased as to take a human life pleasurably, when sin has so wrapped its tentacles around the person that they no longer are even acting under their own will, but the will of evil, then capital punishment, as we said before, is legitimate. War itself is the same way. From the deserts of Iraq to the jungles of Vietnam, to the bloodstained shores of Normandy, to the Israelites rooting out the pagan atrocities of Canaan, war can be justified, can be righteous, according to Scripture. And by the way, Revelation 19.11 tells us something interesting. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Which is how Jesus is coming back to this earth. So to make a blanket statement and say war is unjustified and there should never be war and we cannot fight in the war and what are we doing right now in war? Dang, the Bible's clear that God will use war for just causes. But how do you know? How do you really know what is justified? I mean, we're going to trust Washington? We're going to trust other people to make these decisions? They can't even get along. They're already there at war themselves in the Congress. How can they make that decision? How do we as believers know when a war is just? And the answer is very simple. Flip from your Bibles to James chapter 4. We're almost done. Stick with me a few more minutes here. James chapter 4. How do you know when a war is justified? The answer is very simple. One word, prayer. Prayer. Listen to what James tells us. James chapter 4 in the New Testament, page 1232. In my Bible. James chapter 4 verse 1. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The root reason for wars, my friends, is a lack of prayer. The number one reason why wars happen in this world, whether little wars in your family, little wars at work, or big wars on an international scale, is a lack of prayer. Look at verse 2 again. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel 
You do not have because you do not ask. You're not in prayer, therefore you're at war. If you were asking, you wouldn't be wanting so badly. You wouldn't be so desirous of things like power and land and authority and position if you would just come and ask of your Father. But because we don't ask, because we're not in prayer, wars continue to happen. If we don't pray to the Father, here's one way to look at it, we will pray on people. If we don't pray to the Father, we will pray on people. Lust is the root of war and is the result of a lack of prayer. So again, are you at war with a family member? Are you at war with a boss or an ex-friend or a spouse? Your answer in dealing with that situation is don't pray on them, pray for them. Pray for them. Look at verse 11 down in James chapter 4. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and one judge, and one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so with the command, no murder, we're not talking about the kind of killing that takes place in the categories of capital punishment, or manslaughter, or even war, where justified. We're talking about something that is based in the evil intentions of the heart. When God says no murder, no killing, he goes directly to the heart of the matter. Genesis 8.21 again tells us the intent of man's heart is evil even from his youth. And so my friend, bottom line, murder is a matter of the heart. So you may want to know this morning, so who has the soot on his face? And whose face is clean? Who is this command really written for? The answer may shock you. Come back next week and we'll talk about it.